Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, and uh, you know what? Today is one of those good days. Uh, I got a, a friend on, again, because that's part of the show, <laughs> Rick and Friends. Um, so Jeff Hudson has uh, been part of the community. I don't know when when we met, but I've, I've known him for years, and welcome to the big show. So give give me give the listeners a little bit of an overview of uh, you know once you get up what happens next what what do you do what do I do mm-hmm. okay um, I guess the for for context just so everybody knows is what I do is I have a company called HM Commercial Group um, I've been in the commercial real estate business for almost twenty years. Uh, I've never done residential. It wasn't really of an interest for me because when I wanted to get into the business, I was like, wow, I knew like 20 people that were residential realtors. Like, how do you pick one? And in commercial, I knew one guy. And I thought, you know something? It, for me, it was more interesting. It's um, They tend to be somewhat bigger deals. They're a little bit more technical. Um, you know, you just becomes a little, after a while, you have to become known for what you know. And that took a few years. But from a day-to-day basis, uh, you know, a lot of what we do is we actually cater to the other side of things like the big commercial, you know, uh, land development projects. So I do a lot of uh, analysis to figure out how do these things make sense? How do you compare one property against another? Because they're all totally unique, different locations. So on a day-to-day basis, it uh, it varies from doing a lot of analysis, sort of like Microsoft Excel and doing things like that. So there's a lot of computer work. Uh, there's a lot of phone conversations. There's a lot of emails. It's like any other business, though, it's communication. And I think that's important is uh, to communicate ideas and to be empathetic and to listen. I think more than anything is like, I think sometimes we talk a little too much and we don't listen enough. So I think some of that uh, has maybe been lost a little bit. So one of those things that I think we need to get back to a little bit more. When, whenever you send a new listing, I, I see sometimes like some of these are massive chunks of land like i mean you're you're literally changing the the face of of Kelowna with one deal at times and and you've had several of those where they're iconic they're they're larger deals and those must take a long time to put together too they take an incredibly long time to put together but that's the thing that i like i really like working on bigger deals things like i know we're going to talk about bc tree fruits property down in the north end stuff like that but I really like working on those bigger things because they do change the shape. They change the face of what the community looks like, uh, hopefully for the better. I'd like to think for the better. Um, you know, they're, they're sort of groundbreaking in the fact that most of what I deal with is either large-scale investment or land for development. And some of it is high-rise. Some of it is in the downtown core. Some of it is these really... Um, high exposure sites that maybe are on the on the highway like the former mcdonald's property uh, the former husky site like those are all sort of big gateway type properties um, but in the other side of things i sell land for the development of uh, effectively housing in general um, case in point is we have one in penticton uh, which is uh, it's called wiltsey flats and it's the last big chunk of the wiltsey subdivision on the east bench uh, it's 320 acres, uh, and it has zoning support for upwards of around 700 homes. So that is a big thing in the fact that I don't sell the individual homes, I don't sell individual lots, but we sell that foundation that helps sort of a community evolve and grow. And that's what I love doing is you're so, uh, I got tingles, man. It's, uh, it, it's, it's very cool 
to see at the end of a project like I see stuff like One Water Street. That was probably the very first big high-rise land deal that we did in the downtown. Uh, and I get a, a presentation at a, a social function last week, and we were talking about that, about how the prices of high-rise land and development, how, has it, how it has evolved, but we're still seen as a bargain compared to places like Vancouver and Toronto. But seeing truly iconic buildings like One Water Street and um, you know some of the other ones that have happened in the downtown, notably uh, the one that Mission Group's doing called uh, the Bernard Block, uh, so you've got you know this iconic tower called the Bertram, which is now built, and then the other two towers are coming in behind. And I'm not involved in the construction. I don't involved in the design plan. I'm not naive to think that someone's going to ask me for my ideas to say, hey, what do you think this should look like? You, you don't but, get asked. Uh, uh, no, I get I get maybe I get generally to say what do you think might fit in. But I'm a bit of an architect geek. I love looking at stuff like that. I love seeing it. But it's there's a real pride. Uh, I want to say pride of ownership, but there's a pride in being involved in some of these projects where you're like, yeah, I was involved in that. Maybe to a small degree, I like helping to facilitate and and iron out differences between you know what a buyer thinks and what a seller's expectations are, and making those things happen. That's a a huge thing. So um, we have a in in Kelowna, we have a lot of things. Uh, towers that are moving through and everything else it seems to be a hot topic and uh with insurance or sorry with inflation rates and interest rates going up are we're definitely seeing a bit of a slowdown because it was white hot for a while there like you you probably did in two years i don't know how many deals but i would imagine quite a few uh our deal sheet was pretty solid like we had a lot of deals and i would say that yeah, it was white hot. There's no question about it. And and certainly in the last little while, with we started seeing pushback maybe about a year ago, year and a half ago, from people saying, wow, this construction pricing is just getting out of hand. It's like, I get it. You know, it's, it's supply and demand. Uh, the more demand there is, the more you're going to start to see costs go up. Um, but certainly in the last little while, we saw some real... Um, some real big indicators that things were going to correct. Like it was just no question when people were saying construction costs went up 25 to 30% in one year. That's not something that someone can typically absorb. Uh, the end result, depending on what people were looking at doing, some of those projects still made sense, but they were very, very slim in terms of margins. And, and as much maybe as sometimes developers get a bit of a bad rap, developers are there to provide a service and they put a lot of risk on the line. Uh, they risk putting money out for due diligence. Uh, they put risk up by putting uh, personal and corporate guarantees to secure loans on $50 million projects. There's a lot of risk involved. And the only reason someone's going to take that risk is if there's some sort of tangible reward at the end. Uh, if there's profit, deals get done. If there's no profit, people just are not going to do projects. And, and it does... With when you have that kind of cost increase, twenty-five to thirty percent, a lot of these towers that have been approved at a certain rate per door, I would imagine it doesn't make business sense now to even start that tower. Um, yeah, to to a degree, and I think um, price per door is a bit of an older analogy. So maybe I'm making fun of you, but nonetheless, well, I, I'm old. <laughs> I think we both are. Um, price per door works and it makes sense if all the doors are the same and the problem is and the challenge with doing that is the doors are never all the same like i i do a lot of analysis on every project to determine 
how much are they building? Uh, what was the suite mix like? Like, was it all uh, one bedrooms, two bedrooms? How many? Uh, those prices reflect a little bit differently in terms of somewhat, uh, how someone does their pro forma. Do they mix in studios? Do they mix in some of these little micro suites? You know, you put a, you know, a micro suite by definition is anything under 320 square feet. Is it? Okay. Yeah. So if people put in a mix and they say uh, they build 100 units, like there was a project over on um, uh, Bel Air and Chandler over near Capri Center, uh, they proposed a 100 unit building on 0.67 of an acre was a staggering amount of density. But when you looked at it, 30 of those 100 units were micro suites. So that skews how much someone pays on a price per door. It also skews what someone's going to pay, you know, the affordability aspect of those units. So we just talked about uh, micro suites, and it's an interesting topic because, of course, you know, virtually <laughs> anybody I get in from the city, we all know that this is a reality. We want to live in Kelowna. We're in the we're in the jet stream for the world that they all want to live here. And and does it seem to you? Based on your work and based on what you're seeing, is microsuites a potential part of the solution for making affordable housing in Kelowna? I think it's a part of the solution. I don't think it's the ultimate solution. Um, ultimately, the biggest solution is it's just a supply and demand problem. Right now, uh, a lot of the population projections are that we're going to have another 50,000 people move into Kelowna in the next 20 years. That's a big number. That's a lot of growth. Yeah. And when you look at hunt another 50,000 people moving in, you've got to create housing to accommodate just the intended growth that's happening, not not in addition to the normal people that are just moving in. Um, so you're starting to see a big requirement uh, for the necessity is the faster we can bring housing on, the more it's going to dilute the demand, which is going to bring prices moderated. It, um, it's, it's just a, yeah, ultimately it's a supply and demand issue and the faster we can bring housing on, uh, the easier it's going to make everyone's lives. So how, how long have you been doing commercial real estate? Um, almost 20 years. 20 years. Lived in Kelowna for 23. Okay, so you, you had a real idea of, you know, for instance, downtown. Now, what do you think, because there's a lot of people speculating, on how much that new campus is going to change the face of downtown and, and add to it? In, in your eyes, just from a commercial standpoint... Is this a, a real big boon for downtown? This is a massive boon for downtown. This is a game changer for downtown. If you look at any other city where you're basing uh, a university campus, the entire the, the, the multiplier effect, the domino effect uh, that creates from development and vibrancy in that immediate area, I mean, the amount of traffic you're going to have from, uh, say, another 2,000, 3,000 students plus employees, plus professors, plus faculty, uh, you know, outlying businesses, everyone that's going to have, you know, a coffee shop, some sort of retail, you know, bike rentals, whatever it is, it's an absolute game changer. And I think you're going to start to see a lot of the big plans for the rest of the North End, which is rapidly gentrifying. Uh, I remember 15, 20 years ago, looking at houses uh, in the North End and a friend saying, hey, we should just buy up a whole bunch of these little wartime, you know, houses, you know, $99,000. I'm like, yeah, but eh, it's kind of junky. And it's like, you know, it just, I didn't have that long-term vision the way I see things growing now. And and it's amazing is that in, 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 the, in a very short span, maybe in the previous two years, 
Um, I remember looking and seeing there was a house for sale on Coronation, uh, maybe just on the east side of Richter Street in the in the north end, and it was four hundred and fifty thousand, five hundred thousand. Within two years, uh, people were asking one point two million dollars for those houses. Now, not to say that that's market. But it's indicative of the fact that the growing demand of how people viewed that area and the announcement of a uh, of a university, and not to say that that's had everything to do with the price spike, but it was very indicative of the fact that the demand of what people were seeing and how developers said, wow, I can totally see building in this area, that the demand is going to be huge. So what, what's one of the, the bigger deals that people would probably resonate with that you've put together in around Kelowna, it doesn't have to be in Kelowna, but maybe it's a, a bigger landmass that that years ago you were part of, and and now we have a buildings or houses on it. Um, we talked earlier. We said about like one Water Street was at the time. I'm trying to remember here. Uh, that's almost a three acre site, and I think we sold that for about nine point two million dollars, which is a bargain, isn't it? It's a bargain in today's standards. But back then, everybody was like, wow, that's a big number. And I think because we were still in the infancy of really not thinking about density. And when you look at that project now, it's like, wow, that makes total sense. But they had to come up with the vision. Um, they, had to have, um, they had to have the guts and they had to have the fortitude to do a project like that, to think that, hey, we're going to design a project with a 28-story tower and a 35-story tower and the resiliency to try to take that through council and convince them about why this made sense because it was a it was a, a huge project it required a massive variance and it was uh, it, it was well deserved i think for the market so that was one of the bigger ones we did at the time that was a, uh, really made people sort of eyebrow raising and what was the variance though was it just the height height, height was, was the height. big one okay. um we have a lot of potential for density like the zoning bylaws in Kelowna particularly in the downtown is where you see more density is allowed the the tricky parts about trying to do the density is you're 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 limited by height because we don't just arbitrarily approve you know 80 story towers that's not in the vision for what the community is looking for Um, so height was a limitation which prevented you from getting to what the maximum uh, we call it FAR, floor area ratio, the maximum density you can achieve in a zoning. Um, the other big one was parking, is you can build all the condominiums you want in the world, but the parking bylaws specify that you have to have a certain amount of parking. The limitation in a lot of cases is the water table. In other communities, you can dig down, you can build five stories of underground parking. It's expensive, but you can get it done. When you build into a water table, you have to find a way to displace that water to keep it from coming into the parkade. It's a very expensive way to build, and there's some risks associated with it. Uh, There's been some technology in the last few years that has changed some of that to make it a little bit more affordable. So I think you're going to start to see some projects now with the change in technology that some high-rises, you might see two and three levels of underground parking coming in. That's that's a real big game changer for in the downtown. And up until now, that's been a real limitation. So let's talk about, because uh, of course, affordable housing and, and with it, with the spike in prices, I see a lot of houses get sold and, and renters. In fact, uh, just this morning, I saw a new real estate sign on a house close to my place in Lower Mission, which will displace, I think, about five people out of that house okay. for, for rentals. So are you 
are you seeing more uh, purpose-built rental properties being being created? Hundred um, percent. In you know, if you go back in record, back in like the 1970s up until maybe about 1980, there was a huge wave where people were able to buy land. Uh, financing was still relatively cheap, and they could build a 60 unit or an 80 unit or a 100 unit apartment building. Um, we saw a huge wave of that up until about 1980 when recession hit and interest rates spiked up into the 18 to 21%. So we had a period of about 20 years, 25 years, where really not much was going on for purpose-built rentals. We just didn't see more supply coming on. And then once rates, uh, rental rates started coming up in the affordability, people started doing the math and said, hey, this makes all the sense in the world. Why, why have we not been doing this? So once one person started doing it, everybody else started to take notice. They did the math and said, hey, this makes a lot of sense. So over the last, I'd say, 10 years, we saw a massive wave where a lot of developers were calling and saying, I'd really like to find a couple of acres, maybe three acres. I want to be able to build a purpose-built rental project. So in cases like you've seen in a lot of the areas in the downtown, um, there was one project at the corner of Richter and Clement. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact size of the site, but I'd say it was, it wasn't an acre, but I would say it was probably about 0.7 of an acre. Um, so this is a, a site that is, um, I would say sort of kitty corner diagonal from the RCMP station. It's a project called Proxima and it was built by Kirkhoff Construction. Uh, it was 59 units, I think. Um, five to six story wood frame is almost all what you see is this sort of not greater than six stories because the building code allows you to build six stories conventionally um, before you have to start going into a different composition or building material, notably concrete. When you start building in concrete, it's infinitely more expensive. And just because a building's concrete, it doesn't mean that a person who's renting is going to say, well, I was going to pay $1,500 a month, but boy, concrete is so much nicer. I'll pay an extra $500 a month. It, it, the math doesn't work. So that's where we saw a lot of those types of projects come in. Financing was super cheap. Uh, we were at one point where we were seeing CMHC financing is like 1.8% financing. It was just very, very cheap. The demand was strong. And I'd say there's also been a real big cultural change. Um, I, um, I don't know quite what you say. Call it like a demographic shift. I think there's been more people, millennials and people that are younger, that are starting to embrace the fact that like rental used to be taboo. It's like, no, 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 you know, put your money yeah, in. Buy. But now people are like, hey, I'd rather live quality of lifestyle. I'd rather live in a really good area, walkable to the downtown, walkable to amenities, shopping centers, uh, recreation centers. Transit is a big one, that sort of thing. That's where you see in a lot of these busy roads, like the sort of four lane, six lane roads. That's why there's more tolerance to put more density in these areas because of the walkable aspect. So one of the things that seems like uh, I guess developers and, and various people that are, are really changing the face is, is a vision, like seeing where a community goes. Cause we're, we're experiencing high interest rates, but everything is cyclical. And I think a lot of these, uh, a lot of these big land deals, people are thinking about not now they're thinking about five years, 10 years from now. And what is, what is our community going to look like? What is the growth look like? You know, how can I best serve uh, the community, make some money, of course. But it seems like that that longer-term vision is, those are the ones that are winning, it seems. Yeah, I would say we've seen, 
and I'd say a big thing that has changed too is we've had historically we've had some uh, very deep rooted families in the construction sector. Uh, you know, the Callahan family, the Stober family, uh, the Bennett family. Uh, there's and there's there's a lot of them, but those are probably three of the biggest. Stobers, yeah. So. Yeah. We've seen a lot of those people which have been here since the 60s and building and doing construction uh, and, and a lot of times building to create a legacy, building this massive portfolio. Um, they give a lot back to the community and it's great. But now we're starting to see over the last 15 years, say, we've seen a lot more developers coming in from Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, um, even Saskatchewan and Winnipeg. Uh, they start to look and say, hey, I see the dynamics Kelowna is a great community. It's growing. It's dynamic. People want to live here. I mean, for all of the obvious reasons that we all know. But we've seen that huge migration of people that are developers that are coming in and saying, hey, we see the demand. We'd really like to be able to build here. Um, they see they see a lot of really positive, bright points about Kelowna. And I, it, I don't think it's any surprising to anybody. I think it's just it's funny that it took a little while to get there. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about interest rates because I, I do know that, well, most of the real estate in town has some aspect of that that, you know, we have to think about that for, if not for the developer, again, for the uh, the people buying these these units and that kind of thing. But but just explain a little bit about the Bank of Canada rate and, and how that impacts Kelowna. Okay, for sure. So Bank of Canada sets what we call the overnight uh, overnight lending rate or overnight interest rate. So that's sort of the barometer upon which all the chartered banks as lenders base their rates on for what the consumer actually pays. A lot of times they'll say, well, it's prime plus 1% or whatever the amount is. So we went through the last little period where particularly in COVID, the government was trying to stimulate the economy. There was businesses, especially restaurants and hospitality sector were really deeply impacted. And they wanted to make sure that we didn't slide into a recession and have um, a really poor economy. So they kept the overnight lending rate really low. Like it was it was almost free. Uh, in January, the overnight lending rate was 0.25%. And then once we saw inflation was creeping up, um, hindsight 2020, maybe they should have jumped in a little bit sooner. Perhaps. But I, 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 think, I think they thought that things were going to self-moderate. But it didn't. It actually went the other way, and, it, and inflation spiked. And that goes to what we were talking about was, in my world, construction costs. You know, that's the big thing. But inflation is everything. Cost of goods, cost of shipping, cost of vehicles, groceries, everything. We saw the overnight lending rate. Uh, there was two uh, pretty major increases, uh, one earlier this spring and the other one that just happened on July 13th. So we saw the overnight lending rate from January till now go from 0.25% to 2.5%. In fact, we were only supposed to see three quarter of a percentage increase on July 13th, but the government felt they needed to do something a little bit more severe to try to curb and bring inflation back under control. So that's seen a big correction in terms of the market that all of a sudden construction costs are still really high, but you know, interest rates carrying was still pretty relatively affordable. And it is still affordable, from a historical context. But now you've got the cut and double whammy is you've got high construction costs are still in effect and carrying costs are higher now. And I think that's a big part of why we're seeing everything slowly start to um, quiet down a little bit. But it's not done. Is most of the experts and most of the people that I follow online and the trends, the predictions are that that overnight lending rate will go from 2.5% up to 35 
possibly 4% by the end of September. And that is really going to start to slow some things down. Um, and it's going to uh, it's going to change a lot of things in the economy. So. so the nice thing of chatting with you, Jeff, is the fact that, you know, we we get a little bit of an inside scoop, right? A little bit, a tiny bit. Maybe. Tiny. tiny. It's razor thin. <laughs> uh, but let's talk a little bit about some of the things that are uh, on the West Kelowna side of things. Um, there's there's murmurs, there's rumors, there's I, I've seen some things. Can you elaborate on, on we're going to be seeing, I think, a pretty fundamental shift in how that shoreline looks? Uh, you must be talking about West Ridge Bay. Of course I am. So uh, this is a project that is, you, I'm just starting to see the first little inklings of some um, social media stuff. And you'll, and you'll probably start to see some more stuff come out in about the next two to three weeks. Um, it's a 13-acre site waterfront in West Kelowna, directly across from downtown Kelowna. So if you're familiar with where the old Ferry Wharf Landing, there is a project there called West Rich Bay. So, um, so sorry, is the bluff just above that? or where, Yeah, the, the, bluff, p- the bluff would be, if you're, if you're looking at it from the water, the bluff would be above and to the left. So it's um, maybe not quite, yeah, a little bit in the shadow of it, really. Okay. Uh, next to West Harbor. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so 13 acres, master plan development, uh, it's actually it's still going through the approval process, but um, you're, you're probably talking of upwards a thousand housing units plus or minus over the next however long that's going to take to absorb 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever. But it's a really spectacular design and you can you can look for it on the internet if you Google West Rich Bay, you'll actually find some information, the renderings that show what it is. It, it, it's a really spectacular addition. There's a lot of density involved. A lot of great amenities. I believe what they're talking about doing is operating some form of a, like a water taxi service uh, that could connect oh, that development cool. to the downtown. It, that connectivity, much like you see in in Vancouver, you know, with uh, False Creek and stuff like that, just sort of making your way around. Uh, it, just such a fantastic development. It's going to create a ton of jobs, a ton of housing, uh, a ton of options for people, and you're going to see some really really world-class restaurants involved in that. Uh, there's going to be a lot of um, uh, First Nations art and uh, sculptures and things like that, sort of embracing the heritage. Uh, it, it's going to be a really, really fantastic project. So in the Okanagan, we have, uh, you know, different lands and, of course, Westridge Bay, which you just mentioned. Would, did you put that land deal together? Uh, we did. Okay, so how does that work with... Um, the West Bank First Nations, like how, how do you, how would that even come about? Because obviously, um, you know, there's there's lease land and, and a lot of people in the Okanagan have heard of lease land, yeah. but how does that work with, a, with something like Westridge Bay where, you know, that is a part of that conversation? Okay, so the land is, um, it's separately titled, just like, just like our normal land, but the land is... Um, technically, it's still it's still um, it's crown land, and the crown land has uh, done a, um, a a lease effectively that goes almost for eternity. But uh, a lease that goes with what's called this uh, certificate of property holder CP holder. So they own that land, and they have the right to um, I'd say, from my terms, sell it. But effectively, what they do is they create a lease between themselves and say a developer, and then a developer will secure that land for. 
Um, I'd say 99 years used to be the norm. Now it seems like 125 years is the norm as a land lease. Um, That's also very favorable when people are looking for uh, CMHC financing. CMHC looks very favorably on the longer the term, the better it is. Um, 125 years, I'm not quite sure about you, but I'm probably not going to be around in 125 years. But the important thing is that duration, that term, secures people's investment. So when a developer comes forward and says, I'm going to develop this portion of the project, I'm going to build, say, 300 condominiums or whatever the amount is, then people that are going to buy and effectively buy, it it comes across as it's technically termed a sublease, but effectively they're buying because they're outlaying cash and they have the right to that condominium for the next 125 years. So that's interesting that you mentioned CMHA looks favorably upon 125 years because was 99 years not long enough for them? Or um, No, it was, but uh, it's just extra security. And I think the risk factor from uh, CMHC is effectively the, um, uh, the financial housing arm of the federal government. So uh, they just look more favorably on the longer the term, the less risk there is. So I th- whenever I'm talking to a business and they, uh, they try to include what I would call a, a triple bottom line, which is... You know they're they're good with their employees. They're good with the public. Um, they give back. You know there's there's lots of good things happening with an altruistic business. Is your putting you on the spot here? But is is that the same with H and M? Is it H M or H and M? No, it's H M. Okay, because otherwise you probably get sued. Yeah, no, H and M is a clothing retailer. They're a corporate giant, and and actually it was funny when we when we first started our business. Um, we had people that were trying to Google us and uh, find out HM Commercial. And you don't, you, un, until, you, until people start searching for that name, you don't build up enough searches that you actually show as something. So people would look for that and they would come up with H, H&M Commercial and they would find all these online YouTube videos and stuff like that. So um, we had to pay a, <clears throat> excuse me, a, um, a small fortune uh, to Google AdWords uh, that you would actually pay them money every month to populate to so that you would actually start showing up in more searches and stuff so right. you know hm commercial is what our name is it's uh hudson McInerney is myself and my business partner marshall who started it about seven years ago okay um, not a super sophisticated naming convention <laughs> but the branding and everything was done by a company a, a branding company out of seattle and we uh, work with czech media on doing our website and um we did um yeah it was it actually turned out quite well i think we've got a a fairly recognizable brand name we've got a ton of signs out in the marketplace so it's good from a visibility perspective um but to answer your what did you call it your triple it's a triple bottom line yeah triple bottom line i thought you said triple bypass so but no. that's uh, that's cool that's something else um triple bottom line i'm gonna write that down yeah we do i think it's important for everybody that's a business person to give back to community and whether whether you're volunteering whether you're giving to charity um, I, I think there's a lot of those things that are important to make sure that we want to feel like the community has been really good to us and we want to give back to the community. So we do a lot of um, fundraising efforts. We spend a lot of time and money. We do charitable, um, uh, certain charities like um, BC Cancer Society, uh, Kelowna Food Bank, of course, is one a big one we do, uh, Canadian Mental Health Association we support. Um, but every year as well, we do our big annual fundraiser is called the HM Commercial Ride for Autism. So it started off as a bit of a smaller event. Uh, my partner Marshall, his son has autism, so it's kind of close to heart. And he really noticed that when doing this, 
the support groups were really not that advanced. There was really not that many programs involved with the community for that. Uh, so we were trying to raise money to create programs so that people could have an area so that their children could actually go in and, and get in specific programs that are designed to encourage and stimulate ideas uh, with people that have autism. So we started at approximately six years ago, um, started as a small event. We do it as a fundraiser. It's just sort of a fun charity bike ride. You can go uh, supernova, uh, like some people we know that will ride 80K in a day. Uh, I'm not quite that speed. I'll do more the 8K version where you stop and hit a few wineries. It's more of a fun afternoon, get people out. So it's interesting. If you were to talk to other business owners and, and you know, you and I both talk to business owners, um, what would you say to them when, when they're thinking about doing something around charity? Like what, what kinds of benefits do you see? Cause, and you know, I'm not saying that you have to do something because certain people, it's a personal drive that they want to do something. But then there's a business aspect to whatever you do for charity. And and I've always mentioned that being clever about that is is probably important for businesses to let people know that we do care, we give back, because people do vote with their wallets. And what what advice would you give to business owners to do that? Um, you know, I think I think it's a personal decision for everybody to do something of what speaks to their heart. Uh, when you when you speak to your heart, I think you tend to be a little bit more passionate about it. You get behind it a little bit more. Um, for for us, the HM Ride for Autism is is very close to our heart. Um, it's absolutely ballooned, and it's like it's grown beyond what our expectations were. Um, this year, um, we've actually we've actually been raising money for the last two to three years, and the proceeds go 100% to the Canucks Autism Network. They do such a fantastic job. They're bringing another. 60 programs, mostly sort of sports programs and interactive activities um, for people. And the money stays here in the community, which is a beautiful thing because I'm just, I'm just not a big believer. Even though money for charity is great, I like to see things that happen here in the community. And this year was our best year ever that we raised $117,000 in one day for this event. And through the generosity of the Stober Foundation, they matched our fundraising efforts. So we had $234,000 that's going towards sports programs and activities for autism-related uh, uh, activities here in the community. And, and that's, that's just one thing that we do. But that's the thing is I, I just encourage any other business person, do something that speaks to your heart. Do something you're passionate about because I think you'll get behind it a little bit more. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Oh, goody. How's that? I've been waiting for this. Hang on, let me sit down first. Uh, no, I am sitting down. So, so uh, as you probably know, on the Rick and Friends show, I've had uh, Ron Matusi, Doug Gilchrist, uh, Ryan Smith, uh, city councillors. Like, there's been different people that have come through the door. That sounds like an NHL All-Star team. That's, <laughs> it I, does. It's a pretty good I'm, first I'm more line. of a bench warmer myself. <laughs> now, can we speak frankly about um, getting, getting something built in Kelowna? Uh, is it, is it okay? Is it, is the planning department working diligently? Like just what's a report card from you on, cause you, you do a lot of those deals and, and of course that's a, that's a part of you putting those deals together is how quickly you can get something through and, and how receptive they are to these deals. Um, this will sound like I'm patronizing to anyone that works at the city, but city of Kelowna punches way above its weight class, way above its weight class. 
Um, and, and there's other municipalities in the Okanagan that do very well. Um, but when one considers the volume of applications that they are receiving, the amount of time uh, that it takes to put this through is very favorable compared to a lot of other municipalities. In case in point, if you were to do something in Vancouver, your timeline for approvals on most projects would be three to four years. Really? It's, 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 and it's a massive backlog. And culturally, it's, it's probably very bureaucratic. Culturally, at the city of Kelowna, when, uh, and I would probably give a large um, credit to uh, Doug Gilchrist and his team, 15, 20 years ago, they made a very big change culturally that they were, we're open for business, we want development, we need to grow our community. Let's make sure that we're being cooperative, that the doors are open. It's not carte blanche, like there's still responsibility, but it was more of a, um, how to say, it was more of a kind of like an openness and a willingness to want to treat things. Like instead of if I go into, um, you know, other municipalities, they might say, well, this is our bylaw. This is what we want built. It's like, okay, it's kind of a closed-ended thing. But when I go into uh, city of Kelowna, it's kind of like, you know, this is what the zoning bylaw reads. But we like imagination. We like creativity. So bring us ideas uh, and we'll let council and what the, let the public hear it. So they're really trying to stimulate and encourage people to bring new ideas because I think that's why you're seeing so much um, creativity in some of the development. And, and I give credit to uh, some of the counselors, like um, uh, notably, the, just off the remembers, like Luke Stack and Ryan Don and some people like that, where I've heard them make comments to developers and say, I think this is a good project, but I think you could do better. And I think that's good, is that we don't want to have subpar development. I mean, I want to look around and I want to be proud of the buildings and the projects and stuff that we see in the city. So I'm, I'm kind of glad that the city endorses creativity and I'm glad council... Um, is willing to take a bit of a stance and say, we don't want to just approve anything. We want to see really good quality projects come in. So in October, I talk about this a lot. We have a bit of a municipal election coming really? up. Is yeah. an election coming up? I think oh, I so. I hadn't heard. Um, and I'm wondering from your standpoint, is there, and I ask this of everyone, so I'm not just singling you out, but uh, is there any kind of traits that you want to see in a council? And, and again, I'm not taking into account current council. I'm just saying for people that would get to win a seat, what kinds of traits, what kind of uh, what kind of council member do you want to see sitting in, in the council chambers? Um, I would probably suggest keywords being fairness, accountability, um, honesty, of course. And uh, I'm, I'm a fairly, myself as my personality, I'm a fairly balanced person. So it's not like I shift dramatically left or dramatically right. I think there has to be a happy medium. And I think that's what's nice about having a collection of different people is you get different perspectives and everybody has a different idea about what they want to see in the community. And and as long as those people, I think it's great to have new ideas. I think it's just make sure that people aren't um, uh, so opinionated or so slanted in one direction that they're not willing to look at what's for the benefit of the community to um, support their own ideas. I mean, everybody's got their own ideas, but I just like to make sure that when people look at development applications, at uh, new projects that are coming in, um, I know one of the hot buttons is going to be the Parkinson Rec Center. Oh yeah. Uh, there's, um, you know, there's a project that I think initially with the, and it's gone through about 500 iterations in terms of what that 
project is supposed to look like. But the initial construction budget on that was around $50, $55 million. Then it actually, within a few years, it actually jumped up to $100 million. And I'm, I'm not saying it's exactly the same project. It may have evolved. But now the latest number was somewhere around $130, $132 million. So maybe it's a fantastic new project. And I think it's going to be a wonderful addition and complement, um, you know, H2O and, uh, you know, the facilities of Capital News Center. But I think from, uh, you know, from a taxpayer's perspective, I think we have to have that sort of balance b- between providing really fantastic amenities. They're going to be for, you know, for, um, you know, for our kids, our grandkids, future generations. That's going to be there for another hundred years. Uh, but you have to balance it out with also what makes fiscal responsibility. Um, I don't want to saddle uh, future generations with uh, with an enormous amount of debt either. So. And it's interesting, too, that I remember back in the days of uh, Barry Clark being on council and how, uh, you know, he, I think he was one of those people, and, and, and not to say that there wasn't others, but he seemed to just um, ask some really tough questions. And I think, you know, I, I've, over the years, I've really respected and, and admired anybody that's willing to st- ask a tough question and, and not sideswipe a city staff employee with asking that, but also leaning in on that and saying, can you just help me with this, with this cost expenditure and, and maybe explain why that, that needs to be there. So I kind of appreciate that in the council too. It's just that the ability to ask that question and not be able to shrink in front of the glare, I guess. Yeah, I, I, w- I would agree with that. I think it, it, it's not serving the community by someone who's just a yes person. It's not, it's not serving anything to be just a person that rolls over and says, yep, looks great. Like, well, what, what do you think about it? Like, is this listening to what constituents say, uh, understanding what the direction of the community, and I, and I certainly appreciate and uh, wholeheartedly appreciate how much time councillors have to spend uh, when, when, when they, it's not just spending time at council they do a phenomenal amount of research and studying and looking at development proposals, uh, looking at different things that are going to change the face, understanding the new official community plan. Like there's so much research and reading involved in that. It it really is a full-time job. And it's, do you you think they should be paid as such? Oh boy, that's the real hot question. Thanks for putting me on the hot seat on that one. Um, I think, yeah, I would say Percy, I think they probably deserve to get paid a little bit more. I, I don't necessarily want to go on the record and say absolutely everybody should be paid uh, on, on a full-time thing. I think that's more for the general public to decide on that. But I look at how much work is involved in that position um, relative to the pay, and I think that I think we as taxpayers are getting a really great value from our councillors. I don't think councillors do it for the money. I think they do it because they want to be a oh, steward of the 100% community. Hundred percent, they don't do it for the money. I'm just thinking out loud of, if you do pay them a full time wage, then the problem can be, is that their whole mandate is to stay in that seat because that's their sole source of income, yeah. and and that I think is problematic for a number of reasons, which is, how do I stay in the seat, and I'm going to make a decision based on me holding the seat versus what's actually right for the community, and that that whole question period, but. For me, it's just it's an interesting dialogue because I think our city is growing so fast, then they have to do so much reading and research, as you indicated, that I, I think we're going down the road of having to have to pay them more. Otherwise, we won't get good people, in my estimation. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment. 
Okay, so just leaving commercial real estate and changing the face of Kelowna for just a moment here, Jeff Hudson. But big question. Um, concert you've been to or concert you'd like to be to? So so it, it's uh, and, and could be living or dead. You, I'll give you that one. But a concert you've been to that, that delighted you, that you'd love to see in City Park or some other venue, because Prospera, the audio quality is not awesome. But give, give, me, uh, give me both of those. Okay. How about I throw this out? I, I, interesting what you said about having a concert in uh, City Park. Something like that. Something that I would love to see come to town. A uh, massive fan of uh, Jack Johnson. Oh, that would be perfect. Like, that beach scene. Great idea. Yeah, yeah, we've seen him a couple times at the Gorge Amphitheater in Washington. And it's just, he's such a good musician, so talented. He's like one of the most humble people on the planet. Like he's just such a cool guy. He's a, he's a surfer. And he grew up with guys like Kelly Slater and stuff like that. But he just happened to be a really good musician. And he's made enough money. And most of the money that he makes on tours and stuff, it just goes to charity. He doesn't, he's not out there for the money. He just does it because he loves it. I love the fact that I've heard him on an interview because he doesn't do interviews very often. But he, uh, they said, when are you going to tour? And he goes, oh, I, th- I think in, in these dates. And they're like, why those dates? Just because, you know, that's a better fit for you. He goes, yeah, that's, that's when surfing is at its worst. So he tours around when the waves are at their lowest. I love that about that guy. That's um, that's balancing your priorities right there. Um, we've actually we've actually and I, like I said we saw Jack Johnson at uh, the Gorge Amphitheater and the last time we saw him, um, it's it's such a beautiful setting. If you haven't been to a concert there, it's it's, it's really world class. Um, he started describing how he says, yeah, we've got a bunch of friends that come over from Hawaii. You know, they brought their kids. We got our kids. It's like a big old daycare backstage and all this stuff. And he says, I got I have one of my friends. He wants to come out and play a little bit. I hope you don't mind. His name is Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. And it was like, oh, my God, the crowd went ballistic. Such a good concert. And all the musicians, everybody was the opening act. Um, great band that uh, as well is uh, called Bahamas out of Toronto. One of the most pure, phenomenal guitarists and, and, and such a fantastic show. They were asked to sort of fill in as one of the bands, and they were just incredible. Uh, anyways, they, I would say um, Jack Johnson is there. Um, I do have the extreme good fortune that um, we've got tickets to an upcoming concert as um, the Foo Fighters. Oh, yeah. uh, and the Foo Fighters, they, uh, for most people to know, they lost their drummer, Taylor Hawkins, uh, back in, I think it was April or May, um, died of a tragic overdose. And it was Dave Grohl's best friend. And they were devastated. So they canceled their entire tour. We were supposed to go to the show in Vancouver. I think it was in October of this year. They canceled the entire tour. They took some time to mourn. And what they're doing, they announced, because we registered through their website, uh, they sent out a notification saying they were doing two tribute concerts with proceeds to go to Taylor Hawkins' family. One was in Wembley Stadium in London, and the other one was in Los Angeles. So we managed to go online, and we got tickets to go to the September 27th tribute concert uh, for Foo Fighters. God, I'm getting chills just talking about it. And, and that is fantastic. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I think that's an amazing tribute. But part of me goes, wait a second, they have to raise money for the band member? Because if he's part of Foo Fighters, you've got to imagine that the money is 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 there yeah you would think so yeah but it's just it's just 
the uh, if you've ever read um, Dave Grohl's um, book, he's dealt with a lot of very tragic loss in his life, like he at really least has. two or three yeah. people that it's like, you know, his best friend growing up. Uh, you know, a lot of people were very close to him. Um, so this would have hit him, just devastated him because Taylor was his best friend. And Dave himself was a drummer of you know notoriety. He was the drummer for Nirvana. Um, and there's a lot of talk, I think, that the Foo Fighters, that they may not replace the drummer. They may just not tour again as the Foo Fighters. It might be another version of it, and I don't know that for sure. But I know there was you know thoughts originally that maybe Dave Grohl would become, uh, would go back and be the drummer. But it's an absolutely physically exerting uh, position. And he can drum, but not to the extent anymore of that. Um, plus, Dave is, um, his, has become extremely hard of hearing, so much so that he actually has to uh, read lips a lot of times. So I don't think he's going to do that. But that will likely be, that's a very good possibility. That might be the last time that the Foo Fighters ever play. So it's, a, uh, it's just it's a massive privilege to see them live. Uh, really looking forward to that. I can see the goosebumps. Been an absolute pleasure, Jeff. Uh, again, we'll have to do this again because I, I do love the fact that you see a lot of different deals uh, percolating across the community. And, and even though that we have a bit of an inflationary bump here, I mean, business still ticks along. And, and I think it's interesting that the commercial does help uh, shape a lot of, of the way people see Kelowna. Totally. It's it, For me, it's an absolute privilege and an honor one to do business in this community but also to be involved in these things that are like and we're talking about like uh, foundation level like ground level it it truly is a metaphor for that because a lot of stuff that we're dealing with is raw land or it's something that's sort of the very starting point of what something could become Uh, and that's a lot of what i do is i analyze well this is what i think the you know the city and i think this is what is um, the city may support this is what's probably appropriate for the area, and we help facilitate that. So seeing those types of projects from the ground up, it's like I'm, I'm involved in a very small part of it. Um, but for me, I get, a, I get an inside scoop on everything, and that's kind of cool. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a bit of an ego thing for me that it's great. I get to see all these things and help out in a little part of it. So 